0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 10. However, I'll begin reading in verse 6. This is the second part of James' Ten Commandments. Hear now the word of the Lord. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Oh, Father, we humbly come before you now, asking that you would speak to us through your word. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we continue this week where we left off last week, looking at James' ten commandments, and I want to remind you of the context uh, beginning in verse six to ten. At the end, there we have a call to humility. That's the key to this passage: is this idea of humility. James is calling us to humble obedience. We need more grace. And only the humble receive grace, and so we must learn to walk in humble obedience before God. And that's what James is teaching us to do with these Ten Commandments. They show us how to humble ourselves before God. And last week we began with act of allegiance. We talked about that. That's what we looked at. We, we must submit to God. That was one command. And we must resist the devil. And that was the first point. Well, this morning we're going to look at the remainder of the commands, and we'll do it under three headings that I mentioned last week. Active intimacy, beginning in verse 8. Active purification at the end of verse 8. And active repentance in verse 9. And then I'll just close and we'll look at verse 10 together. And so we had active allegiance last week. This week, first active intimacy. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, this contrasts with verse 7. In verse 7, we're called to resist the devil, and he will flee. Here in verse 8, we're called to draw near to God, and God draws near to us. The devil turns his back on us, and God turns his face toward us. And, And that's what we want. Two great promises here. Satan flees, so resist, and draw near to God. Why? Because when we do, he promises to draw near to us. Now, if you're anything like me, you want to turn that around, and God show yourself, reveal yourself, draw near to me, and then I'll take the effort and time and try to draw near to you. But that's not what is said here. Um, one writer said, We always want the promise before the command, but that is not James' order here. For the believer, we must first draw near, and then God draws near to us. See, if we're gonna endure this battle between the world, the flesh, and the devil, the one thing we need most to do that is God. If we're gonna conquer the world, we're gonna conquer the flesh, we're gonna conquer the devil, we need God. We need a relationship with him. We need communion with him. We need his partnership. We need his presence. We need his power. The image here is of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son. He 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 left home, but then he realizes it was better off at home, and he makes his way home. And as he's drawing near to his father... While he was still a ways off, his father saw him, and his father, filled with compassion, runs to his son, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. That's Luke chapter 15. The father smothered him with kisses. See, when you move toward God, what you find that he's already moved toward you. Kent Hughes put it this way. If you inch toward God, he will step toward you. If you step toward God, He will sprint toward you. And if you sprint toward God, He will fly toward you. See, the, the place of safety, beloved, for the believer, the place of refuge and strength for the believer, the place of security in the midst of our battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil is in the very presence of God. If we're going to win that battle, if we're going to win the fight, we must be in intimate fellowship with The Father. Last week, we talked about that these are military terms. It's a a battle we're in. And and for us to win our battle, we need to be near the Father. And so James is saying, draw near to Father God. So how do we draw near to God? Well, in the Old Testament, that term, draw near, is used of the act of repentance itself. And we're going to look at repentance as our third point. So we'll hold off for that. Um, but return to me, he says in Zechariah 1.3, and I will return to you. Repentance. But it's also used in the context of worship in general and prayer in specific. Uh, uh, Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And so uh, that's your answer. How do I draw near to God? Repentance, worship, and prayer. We'll look at repentance, as I said. But here I want to focus on this worship and prayer. Do you want to draw near to God? Do you want to cultivate this act of intimacy with God? Then you must come to worship Him on His appointed day when He promises to meet with His people, week in and week out, year after year. And it's not just enough why I I made it into the door, I can check that off. It's, It's preparing for it. It's engaging it. It's saying, Lord, speak to my heart. Show up this morning and speak to your people. That's how we draw near to God. You come under the teaching of the Word in public worship, where the Bible is read to you, and and it's preached to you, and it's prayed, and it's sung, and it's even seen when we have the sacraments. You're coming under the Word of God. You must take advantage of every opportunity you can to have fellowship with God. You know, think of the, the first time someone falls in love. Maybe it was the first time you fell in love with your spouse. And as you started to get to know one another, your love started to grow. You were always together. And it always annoyed people. And they'd look for you. And you, had, you were making excuses. Well, you know, I got to go over so-and-so's house. And, and your parents, that would be your excuse. But I got to go see her or I got to go see him and like I said, your friends got upset because you were never with them anymore. You always wanted to be with them. And then you dated for a while. Let's assume this isn't your spouse now. It's just a date. And, and, and after a while, the relationship grows cold, and, and you walk away, and you knew something. As an outsider looking at my friends or my friends looking at me, there's something wrong in that relationship. It's going to end soon. Why? Because everything I just described when they first met wasn't happening anymore. Well, how about we apply that to our walk with God? Do you long to be in the presence of God? And do you, do you long to worship God each Lord's Day? Do you look forward to that? Do you often spend time speaking to God during the week in prayer One writer said, do you wake with God and then report to Him again in the evening as well as throughout the day? Do you talk about God and the things of God with people? That is, is your conversation seasoned with biblical truth whenever you have opportunity? Do your friends think you're a little over the top, you know, with your commitment with God? It's a a little weird. I told you, my friends used to call me Drusus you know, for Jesus. It, it, they just thought, well, that's okay. We're glad you got your life together. But it seems a little over the top. Is being in God's presence something you cherish, or is it the opposite now? I don't know. Would my friends still call me that? I am, I, I am a preacher, but do I long for that presence with God? Is it as thrilling as it was? Or, or am I now saying, you know, worship's just a little too much of a hassle, You know, I gotta come out, I gotta drive, I gotta get dressed, they expect me to wear a suit and a tie, and 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 you know, I I have to show up on Sunday, maybe twice on Sunday. You know, they they do 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 you miss prayer because it's just too much work? And, And and you have other activities you want to engage in. Would your friends even know you had an intimate relationship with God? See, how you spend your time answers that question. If you don't desire to be in His presence, then that says that your love has grown cold. And this happens time to time again with Christians, but it also happens to churches generally. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, I have this against you, speaking to the church, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. See, the the blessing of intimacy with God doesn't just happen any more than a healthy marriage just kind of happens. It it must be cultivated. It, It needs to be worked at. You must actively draw near. You must uh, discipline yourself in Bible reading, in prayer, in private worship, all these means, public worship, uh, coming to the Lord's table, fellowship with other believers. If you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you've been united to Christ, if you've been brought into this loving relationship with your Heavenly Father, then you should long to commune with Him. This is the testimony we see in the Psalms. You know, we read Psalm 27, You have said, Seek my face. My heart seeks you. Your face, Lord, do I seek. We read in Psalm 42, maybe a little bit more popular, As a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God. Uh, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, I, when shall I come and appear before God? Do you hear the longing in, in the psalmist's voice? They want to draw near the desire to come to worship. That's the longing James is calling all of us to have. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. Psalm 84, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. That's what we need, beloved, a a kind of holy panting for God, a a holy thirsting for God, a holy fainting after God. That word faint means completely spent, to, to come to an end. The psalmist is saying, I've exhausted all my physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual resources, Lord, just to worship you and be in your presence, And yet, the word indicates that he was never fully satisfied, not because he's not satisfied with God, because it's not enough. He needs more, more, more. It's still not enough. I want to worship you. I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. Draw near, is what the psalmist is saying. And James is saying to us, that's the longing that we should have, the desire to be near God so much that it exhausts our resources. And see, beloved, I can think of only one way we're going to get that longing, that we're going to gain that longing. It's by remembering the promise that's attached to this command, that we will what? Receive more grace. Grace. That the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, the holy, majestic, and transcendent God will draw near to us. That's the promise. See, this isn't really a duty. I'm not saying to you, get out there now and pick up your Bibles and read. You should delight to do this. We should delight it. God Almighty draws near to you. God Almighty, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, draws near to you. Your loving, heavenly Father draws near to you. That should be a delight. Active intimacy with God is a necessary requirement if we are going to humbly submit ourselves to God and receive more grace. That's the first point. Second, we have intimacy first, now active purification. Look at the end of verse 8. These two go together. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That flows from intimacy with God. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author there puts them together. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Intimacy. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Purification. Now, so they they go together. But I want you to take a step back here and I, I want you to recognize something. I want you to realize, and I, I know as Christians it's hard for us to realize this, but it, we need to realize that, that the most obvious truth is not that God wants to draw near to us. We look at it and say, so, well, yes, He does. And, and we, we, instead of humility, it's pride. Yes, God wants to be with me. I don't blame Him. Now, that's not it. That's the least obvious truth there is, that God would want to be with Sinners, And yet that's what James says. And so if that's true, if God is who he says he is and he wants to draw near to us, we got to believe another truth. And I want to make this clear. that The context makes it clear. It's why it's important. James has already covered this truth. A truth that I've mentioned on several occasions during our study of James. That we've already been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That we have already been uh, uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. See, God, one can draw near to justified sinners because, as believers, we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now, what James is saying—that was true. We talked about it already. You've been you've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Now that's your position. I want you to put it into practice. You have been declared righteous. Now I want you to live righteous. That's what James is addressing here. These beloved brethren, James has called them brothers over and over again. They're acting out of character, he says to them. They are in need of a wake-up call. And that's exactly what he gives them. He no longer calls them brothers here. He calls them sinners. He calls them double-minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. They're facing both ways. They're, they're two souled. We talked about this in chapter one. A person who faces both ways is a double minded man, once to the world and, and also uh, to God. And James is driving home the idea that you can't flirt with the world and also claim to be in love with God. And so he's saying, Look, you need to be cleansed, we need to be purified. Both our outward deeds and our inward ha- hearts need to be cleaned. Our, our hands, our hands, our deeds, and our hearts, all of them need to be cleansed. He, he's, he's saying, look, we got to do a little bit of spiritual pruning. There's a lot of sinful weeds in your life, and we need to get rid of those before they sprout up and they, they choke our spiritual growth. And then they what happens is they'll end up stifling your intimacy with God. And as he said in chapter 1, verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Hebrew says we need to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles. Again, we we can't be engaged with the world and embracing the world and at the same time expect to have intimacy with God. See, this is a battle. Again, we're reminded. It's a, it's a battle we're in. Being pulled one way by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the other way by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And both the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan battling. And so we need to clean up our lives. Cleanse your hands, he says. That, that phrase reminds you of the Old Testament cleansing rituals. It made people ceremonially unclean. We read about them in Exodus. Uh, Exodus thirty, for example, uh, the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, "You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it wherever between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it." And so you have this bronze basin, and or when they, and when they go into the tent of meeting, the priest. Or when they come near the altar to minister, to, the, to burn a food offering to the Lord, when they come near to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They were coming into the presence of God and they needed to wash. And so it originally had to do with that ritual. But it didn't take long for the Israelites and, and the people to realize that it was, God was trying to communicate something more than that. He wasn't saying, look, if you have dirty hands, you can't worship me. That God had more in mind than outward washing. It was symbolic of removing evil. And that's what Isaiah says. Wash yourselves. Immediately they would have thought of the basin. Make yourselves clean. How? Go to the basin? No, no. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. See, the command was ultimately moral, not ritual. We need to cleanse ourselves. We need to cleanse our lips. We need to cleanse our hands. We need to cleanse our hearts. We need to cleanse our minds. Our words, your deeds, your emotions, your thoughts, all must be cleansed. All those things that detract you from focus on God. Uh, The psalmist required clean hands and a pure heart for those who would stand before God, says Psalm 24. And and James is demanding the same. You must actively pursue purity in life. You need to put to death the deeds of the flesh, says Romans chapter 8. If by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live, we're taught. And that is how we do it. We do it by the Spirit. Notice something. And this is important, that James says we first draw near to God, and then we cleanse our lives. And this is what we should be grateful for. He doesn't say, get your act together. You better start being holy, then you can draw near to God. See you can't get your act together unless you draw near to God. It's draw near to God first and then work on cleansing. James understood this. He understands that only when you know the reality of of God's presence in your life, when you practice the presence of God, as some have said, when you come under the holy influence uh, of, of God, only then you properly are motivated to purify your life. It's when you're in the presence of God. We don't clean up our lives so we can come to Christ. We come to Christ so He can clean up our lives. That's how it works. And so the greatest, greatest means of purification, the greatest means of cleaning up your life is is an experiential knowledge of Christ. The more you know Christ, the more you will want to purify your life. And the more you purify your life, the more you will grow in your intimacy with God. I had a professor say to me once, when I was in Bible college that either you will continue to sin or you, or you will continue to pray about it, but you won't do both. And what he meant was if you pray long enough, either you'll quit the sin or you'll quit the praying. And 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 that's the way it is. The more I knew Christ, the more I wanted to purify my life. Oh, I wasn't perfect. I'm still not perfect. You're not perfect. But the more I grew in my knowledge, uh, the more I grew in my intimacy with God. The 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 more grace He gives, the Scripture says. And and, and as I draw near to Him, I I, I want to purify my life. And that is the process. That is the promise. In 2 Corinthians 7, we read, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. James has been saying it over and over again. The pursuit of holiness is your lifelong pursuit. Now, what do you do for a living? I pursue holiness. I also work here, but I pursue holiness. That's your job, as it were. Nothing is more important than pursuing holiness and pursuing the presence of God in your life. That's why I can't really emphasize it enough to say you need to come to worship prepared to meet with God. You need to be in in a Bible study. You need to be in a fellowship of some kind. You need to be praying. You need to come to the Wednesday prayer meeting. You need to take the Lord's Supper. You need to understand the importance of these things. They're not only the means of drawing near to God, they're the means of God that God uses to cleanse us as well. These are the means he's provided. And, and maybe you're listening now and you're, and you're saying, you know, yeah, I've never had that much passion for God. I mean, I, I'm excited that I'm saved, but I don't remember ever fainting. And I, and I haven't panted much, you know, and, and, and I, I just don't have the passion that the psalmist talks about. At best, I'm on again and off again. And if that describes you, well, no, it describes me too. And God has provided for that as well with the gift of repentance. That's our third point, act of repentance. We had active act of intimacy, act of purification, and now act of repentance. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. See, James is driving you down. He's driving you lower and lower. We've been called to take sides, to submit ourselves under God, which leads us, what, to resist the devil and draw near to God. That in turn prompts us this longing to be more like him. And the more actively we pursue this holiness, the more deeply and sorrowfully we feel when we sin against him. Because why? Because our our shortcomings are exposed in the light of his grandeur. And because of this, we grieve, as the NIV puts it. We read, we mourn and we weep. Our laughter has turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. James is basically saying look, take sin seriously. It's not something to joke about. It's not something to laugh about. It's an affront of God. And so a true knowledge of God should bring to the forefront of our minds the total depravity of our heart and should cause great sorrow. James isn't saying, look, walk around depressed or you really don't love God. You know, put a frown on your face. He's, he's not denying there's joy in the Christian life even though we sin regularly, he's using the language of repentance. And and he's saying, don't take sin lightly, either in yourself or in others. Repent of it. Turn the other way. Leave it behind. And part of that includes a godly sorrow. It's not just crying because you got caught. It's, I I, am offending you, Lord. Think about it. When your sin in your life now hurts somebody you love, you, your anger gets the best of you and it hurts someone you love, what happens? You, you weep. You don't start laughing over it or you don't really love them, do you? If you did, I don't recommend it anytime soon, to laugh at your spouse after you yelled them. You know, your mourning, your laughter has turned to mourning and your joy has turned to gloom. That's the point James is making. See, either we can laugh now over sin and mourn later over judgment, or we can mourn now over sin and rejoice later over God's grace. And James isn't saying anything more than what Jesus said. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh, Luke 6.21. But then he goes on to say in verse 25 of chapter 6 of Luke, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And so it's really a choice. Which will it be? It, it, it's it's you're presented with this choice now. You have to choose one: laugh now, weep eternally; weep now, rejoice eternally. See, James is calling us to repentance. It's a call that's found throughout the Scriptures. Hear the call. Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Acts 3, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 8, repent therefore of the wickedness of your ways and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. 2 Corinthians, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. James wants to know. Will you to continue in your sin, or are you going to repent? Or are you going to repent? And the choice shouldn't be difficult. It wasn't difficult for the apostle Paul. Wretched man that I am, he cries out. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He recognized that he was a sinner. His soul and his—I mean—his sin caused despair of soul, as it were. He he wept. He grieved. He mourned. But even in the midst of all that, knowing that his sin was so great, he remembered. He remembered that there's someone greater than his sin. And so he says this in the next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can deliver me? Jesus Christ can deliver me. And so true sorrow of our sin causes us to do what? It it causes us to despair, yes, but to look outside of ourselves, to realize that the answers aren't within us. And and, and, then it brings us to despair so that we'll see that we can find Christ, I mean, find salvation somewhere else, find forgiveness somewhere else, and find it in Christ alone. So James is saying, look, you're going to fall short. Repent, and you can be forgiven. And, and repentance is very humbling. I mean, you have to admit, I've been going in this direction. Whenever I uh, do something, I start doing something positive, say I'm, I'm reading more, I'm praying more, there's a joy in that, right? You would all agree there's a joy in that. But there's also a guilt, because I know that the last six months I hadn't been doing it. And so there's this, this, this difficulty that you, you grieve, but I realize that my efforts are based in Christ. He's forgiven me, and I turn to him. But it is humbling. And we're told here something that helps us in that. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. The, the Lord is setting this downward path for us downward to to humility because there's no other way up. See, God does on purpose lead us to the pit of despair, to the point where we we, we realize that we have no hope so that he alone can receive all the glory for lifting us back up again. This is really the sum and substance of the whole Christian life. What James has taught us is the lifelong process of growing in holiness and in sanctification. And it's always the same, this side of heaven. It will always be this way. It always will. God initiates. We learn that. It is, he gives us grace to believe, and He gives more grace to continue in belief and, and to obey. And, and then we align ourselves with Him and, and we, through submission, last week's message. And then we submit by resisting the devil and drawing closer to to our Lord, and we draw closer to his presence, it compels us to want to be like him and to purify our life. But then the more we get close to him, the more we realize that we fall short, and so we repent, and then we start the whole process over and over again. And it goes on and on and on until the day that we don't have to deal with the power or the persistence or even the very presence of sin any longer when God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit, draws us to Himself. That's the Christian life. Well, there's other things, but that's the sum and substance of it. It's all by grace from first to last. And so James says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you you know many years ago I'll I'll close with this Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, you've heard me mention 10th Press he was the previous pastor before James Boyce of 10th Press Um, and he spoke at this really great large convention and he stood before the crowd and he began his address and he dramatically said up is down and he paused and said nothing and then just said, down is up. And I'm sure everybody looked at him, but he went on to explain, I'm sure that he was making the point that James is making here, that God exalts the humble and brings low the proud. And see, James is only making the point that Jesus himself made. In fact, it's not only the point Jesus made, it's the point that Jesus lived out. We read in Philippians 2, and being found in human form, Jesus. Now, this should be, uh, it should shock us that it says Jesus before humbled. But Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what happens? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, and God the Father exalted him. He lived out the very spiritual law that he imposes on us here in this chapter of James. Three occasions, Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said it in Matthew 23. He said it in Luke 14. He said it in Luke 18. And so do you see, James is calling you to live the life of Christ. That's the call here. To do as your Savior did. To do it in the strength of your Savior and to do it for the glory of your Savior. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Down is up. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we truly need humility. It is our desire. I'm sure everyone here who believes in you would say that, yes, they want to draw near to you. They want to know you. They want to have the passion, and yet we don't. So we ask for your spirit to grant us the the gift of repentance, and then, Father, for your Spirit to strengthen us, that we would see past all the things in this world that would draw us astray. And while still living in this world, seek you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen.